0: Hello everyone. No new Patreon supporters to acknowledge this week, but I did want to tell you that related to today's subject, I will be posting a bonus episode over the weekend featuring this artist in the varied kinds of pop music, operetta, musicals, etc. that she sang over the course of her career. If you're interested in hearing that episode or becoming a Patreon supporter, please go to patreon.com countermelody and you too can join that burgeoning number of supporters that I have and that I welcome and am grateful to with all my heart. And now, because it's a big topic, let's get going with this week's episode. Welcome to Counter Melody, the podcast on great singers and great singing. Each week you will encounter me, Daniel Guntlach, as your host, guiding you along a magical route that will bring us closer to the voices of those singers that most enchant and transform us, no matter what else is going on in the world out there. Thank you for joining me on that path. now, this week's episode. I'm presenting to you this week an artist that I've had a chip on my shoulder about since I first heard her late recordings in the 1970s. I thought that to get going with the episode, I should play you, first of all, an excerpt from the recording that was my introduction to the singing of Anna Moffo. The American lyric coloratura who lived from 1932 to 2006. This is an excerpt from her recording called Heroines from Great French Operas. This is Je veux vivre from Romeo et Juliette. Listening to this recording again, I am struck by two things. First of all, Anna near-complete inability to be able to sustain pitch at this point in her singing career. This was an element that absolutely drove me up a tree and that led me to imitate her mercilessly when I was in my early 20s. There were certain cadenzas in particular from this recording that I would toss off at parties and people would be in stitches. So that is the voice that I had in my mind's ear when I thought of Anna Mofo. But even when I listened to earlier recordings that she had made in her prime, I was struck still by so many of the vocal bad habits and mannerisms that that, by 1975, were the only thing that was left in her voice, apart, of course, from hints here and there of the enormous beauty of the intrinsic voice. But before I begin this reappraisal, as I've called it, I do want to play you an excerpt of Mofo, less than eight years earlier, singing the same aria in a live performance from Hartford, Connecticut. These are just the final roulades of the Je veux vivre. This performance took place on the 15th of December 1967. say about Anna Moffo, and I have learned so much in the listening that I've been doing recently, and I have come to a much greater appreciation and understanding of her artistry. Moffo's career began when she was a Fulbright scholar in Italy and was plucked from virtual obscurity to appear in three different televised operas for the Rai the italian radio and television we'll be hearing excerpts from those recordings but first i want to share something with you that for anamofo is a very late recording this is from the year 1972 and it is most unexpectedly from a leader album that she made with pianist gerald moore this is richard strauss's beautiful song breit über mein haupt Anna Moffo was, without a doubt, alongside Lisa della Casa, the most beautiful woman to appear on the operatic stage during the 1960s. She is also by far the most erratic singer that I have ever heard. In a performance of a single aria, we can have moments of transcendent beauty followed by really sour out-of-tune, scoopy phrases that can sometimes be frustrating and often very confusing to one's ear, resulting in almost a kind of seasickness, at least for me. She first came to the attention of Walter Legge after her appearance in The Madama Butterfly, and he engaged her for two recordings, Herbert von Karajan's recording of Falstaff and the Maria Callas recording of La Boheme. Those recordings both were made in the summer of 1956. Following that, debut followed debut in rapid succession, and within a few years, Anna was not just an opera star. She was a media figure, a TV star, a movie star, recognized as one of the most beautiful women in the world, and subject to an incredibly heavy workload, which began to take its toll, most noticeably, I would say, around the year 1968. Shortly thereafter, she had a disastrous live performance at the Met in February 1969 of Lucia di Lammermoor, in which she came to complete and utter grief in the mad scene. It's up there for people who want to hear it. I think it's a little ghoulish, but it's there, and... In a way, it's very edifying, because a lot of people said that she was drunk. I don't believe that to have been the case. I don't know what was going on, but the point is that Anna Moffo was always an extraordinary musician, and even in that unmitigated disaster of a mad scene, she does not make musical errors. You still hear the precision of her coloratura and the ping in her high notes but you also hear, and I suggest that this is one of the big flaws of the Mofo technique, an improper grounding of the middle and low voice. In spite of all of that, Mofo worked so hard to rebuild her technique, and in 1970 she recorded the title role of Carmen under the baton of Lauren Mazel. I expected it to be a further unmitigated disaster, but I found it surprisingly effective. Here's an excerpt from the card scene. As Frasquita and Mercedes, we briefly hear Arlene Auger and Jeanne Berbier Certainly the biggest faux pas of Moffo's career was a recording of Thais that was released in 1974. By this point, Moffo had divorced her first husband, the Italian director Mario Lanfranchi, who oversaw the media circus of her earlier career, to marry Robert Sarnoff, who, following the retirement of his father David, took over as the CEO and chairman of the board of RCA, with whom Moffo had had a recording contract since 1960 and who oversaw the release of the Thais recording. But again, Moffo was full of surprises, because following that really laughable, disastrous recording, she pieced her voice back together again, and went on to make one more creditable recording of Montemezzi's L'Amore di Tre Re, opposite Cesare Sieppi, and to continue to give live performances that could still generate quite a bit of excitement. One role that she took on that really she had no business taking on, I would suggest, was Tosca, which she assumed as she was piecing her voice back together. Here's a live recording from Tampa in 1977 from the third act, the brief excerpt in which Tosca describes the murder of Scarpia at her own hand. that there's a lot more to Anna Mofo than immediately meets the eye. First of all, she was an extraordinarily intelligent woman, probably smarter than any of the other people who oversaw her career. Gosh, there's just so much to say about her, but I would like to continue with some excerpts from her very earliest appearances. I mentioned that telecast of Madame Butterfly. This was directed by the man who was to become her husband, Mario Lanfranchi. We'll hear an excerpt from that actual telecast in a few minutes. But meanwhile, here's a recording from the year 1958 of the complete Madama Butterfly. This was her first recording, I believe, for RCA Records, and this is Butterfly's entrance. There is some near-perfect vocalism going on here. Mozart was a composer who played a very important part in Moffo's early performing life. She recorded the role of Susanna under Carlo Maria Giulini, again for EMI Records, the first company with whom she had a contract. That's a legendary recording in which she is one of the most brilliant aspects. I'm going to play you something a little less well-known, and that is a performance from Aix-en-Provence, in the summer of 1956, which captures her performance of Zerlina in Don Giovanni. This is a portion of Vedrai Carino, and Hans Rosbaud conducts the Orchestre de la Société des Concerts L'Amoureux, which was the pit band at Aix-en-Provence in those years. There were two other Rai televised operas in which Anamofo appeared in the year 1956. One of them was Amina in Sonambula, which is available and wonderful to listen to. What I'm going to play for you, however, is Nanetta's aria from the telecast of Falstaff. This was under the baton of Tullio Serafin, who, of course, was an important mentor to Maria Callas, and who also played a very important part in Moffo's early career. By the way, her primary teachers were back in Philadelphia, Eufemia Giannini Gregory, who was the sister of the composer Vittorio Giannini and the marvelous soprano Duzzolina Giannini, whom we've heard before on the podcast. During her early years in Italy, she also studied under Mercedes Yopar, the Spanish soprano, who was also a teacher of Renata Scotto and Alfredo Kraus and also other Luigi Ricci, who compiled that very important and famous collection of four volumes of variations and cadenzas for the traditional Italian repertoire, particularly bel canto. His influence on Moffo is particularly apparent in her recordings of Traviata and in her Rai performances of the bel canto repertoire. Anyway, Here is a telecast from the year 1959 of the title role of Lucia di Lammermoor, one of Moffo's most important roles. This is the end of the mad scene, Spargi da Maro Pianto, and Fernando Previtali is leading the Rai Orchestra of Milano. bit Of early Moffo Bel Canto. Here's Vien Letto from I Puritani, another 1959 telecast in which Mario Rossi leads the Rai Orchestra of Milano. This is one of the most stunning examples, I think, of the ease and accuracy with which Moffo approached this repertoire, and especially in this performance, the exceeding beauty of her voice. In 1960, Anna Moffo switched her recording allegiances from EMI to RCA and began making complete opera recordings, which are very well known Boheme, Traviata, The Wonderful. I'm not playing excerpts from those today, but we will examine Moffo in the role of Violetta a little later in the episode. Another, less familiar aspect of moffo's early days at RCA were two 45s, one of Songs of Irving Berlin, the other Songs of Gershwin, in which she was accompanied by a combo led by the pianist Piero Umiliani, and in which she begins to assume a more poppy approach, which is immediately apparent. I mentioned at the very top that I'm going to be offering a bonus episode to my listeners and I will be offering further excerpts from both of those extremely rare recordings here is the man i love
1: someday you
2: come along.
0: Anna has stated, and I can't find the reference now, but that Mario Lanfranchi, her husband at the time, reformulated and tinkered around with her vocal technique. I'm assuming that means that he brought more of those scoopy, poppy elements into her singing of classical music. I might be mistaken, but that's my interpretation of that statement. I believe I already mentioned that I think the real vulnerability of Moffo's voice was a lack of grounding in the low range. And what this means, practically, is that she often experiences pitch difficulties, that is, she tends to go flat, in that part of her range. Especially when she's either coming down from a higher range, or moving stepwise through that tricky area of her voice. This is what always distressed me about even Anamoffo's best recordings. But now I think it might be the time to talk about vocal mannerisms, because I would say almost all of our favorite singers display them. I mean, think, some of the most mannered singers out there are some of my most favorite. Renata Scotto, Leontine Price, John Vickers, when David and I were discussing it this week, I said, well, what do you think about Helen Donut? Is she a mannered singer? And he said, no, she seems to him, as she does to me, to be one of the very few unmannered great singers. My point is that whether it's a singer that I love, like Magda Olivero, or a singer that I personally despise, like Elisabeth Schwarzkopf, that the mannerisms form a great part of the vocal thumbprint. And this is so true in the case of Anamofo. Sadly, what happened in her case, I think, is that as the voice started to fall apart, all that remained were the mannerisms. Almost the way that a plant host can be taken over by a parasite, which then sucks all the life out of the host plant. So I think that's what happened with the voice of Anamofo. A lot of people don't hear this aspect of her singing. They don't hear the struggle that she goes through to maintain pitch. They don't hear the excessive swooping and scooping. They don't hear how this was eventually a losing battle. They celebrate recordings like her 1971 release of Melodie of Claude Debussy as being something exceptional. To me... It's exceptionally awful. I can't even listen to it. And so, again, I've had to come a very long distance to appreciate MOFO. And I'm hoping that some of the excerpts that I'm going to play for you now will document my MOFO rehabilitation, if you will. Here's another fact about MOFO that might not be so well known. That is that in the 1960s, she had her own television program in Italy, and it was called The Anna Moffo Show, and you can see excerpts from it on YouTube, and they are positively enchanting and oh-so-60s. By the way, here's another thing regarding Moffo's beauty. Somewhere following her Met debut in 1959, she had a nose job. You can see her much larger proboscis on those Rai telecasts. I don't know if that procedure affected the condition of her voice. We know that Barbara, for instance, always resisted having a nose job because she was afraid it would affect her voice. But yet, in the case of Moffo, there was something more important to the media product than her voice. And the product, I suggest, was her beauty. And that took precedence all too often over the voice. If that were not true, that Thais recording simply would never have seen the light of day. There is a video out there of Moffo singing Depuis le jour. I'd say it's from the late 60s. And she is clearly in enormous vocal distress. This was not an easy aria for her to sing. There's that recording, there's one with Kurt Eichhorn from the early 1970s, and then there's one on the disastrous heroines from great French operas. In each case, her voice is in a complete shambles. But I look at the comments on that telecast, and all of these people are writing, oh, this is the most beautiful, this is the most sensuous, I just can't believe an opera singer has ever looked so beautiful in all her life, and oh my God, this voice, but the voice is in a shambles. And just as I have had to reappraise my criticisms of Mofo to allow for a more complete picture of her virtues, so, I think, do people who don't hear those flaws really need to look very carefully and see and hear what is going on there. And when we look at this, I think we also have to discuss the role of the patriarchy in all of this, frankly and the way that this scooping and swooping around becomes a code for a certain kind of seductiveness, which frankly, to my ear, detracts from her virtues. I will never not be able to hear those mannerisms, which are most apparent, I suggest, in her performances of Italian pop music in the 1960s. So I'm going to play two examples for you of that. First is a song that Moffo wrote herself called Ombre. This is a recording from 1964, in which she is accompanied by Billy Smith e la sua orchestra. The words are by Moffo's husband, Mario Lanfranchi.
1: Senza di te vivo nell'ombra perché <speaking> Non <in Spanish> Tendi sul mondo, su me, oh, senza di te, il mare inutile, senza di te, il sole diafano, senza di te, ogni colore scompa, non trovo più lì. Tu sempre che spa in me una fuga di verdi, di rossi e blu, oh, non sognerò, i sogni muoiono, non piangerò, non so più piangere, aspettare.
0: Even more swoopy and kittenish is this rare 1968 recording of Moffo singing a song called Dipenderà da te, It Depends on You, by the composer Piero Piccioni and the lyricist Antonio Amurri. The orchestra here is conducted by Gianni Ferrio. was a media figure in the 60s and 70s in three very different markets. First and foremost in Italy, where she not only appeared on the Anomofo show, but also in a number of films, including Una storia d'amore with its notorious nude scene. But she also was very much a figure in TV shows and movies from the U.S., Unfortunately, when one watches interviews with her from this period, it's frankly kind of disgusting to see how much attention is, is spent discussing her body and her beauty. Whereas I'm thinking, of course, the whole time, what about her intelligence? What about her musicianship? What about her voice? But the focus was always on her appearance. And that, again, is an example of what the patriarchy can do to a serious artist who happens to be extraordinarily beautiful. And by the way, I think this whole trend didn't begin with Moffo. I mean, think of other beautiful singers who preceded her. Lina Cavalieri, Geraldine Farrar, Grace Moore, and the media brouhaha that sprung up around these artists. But in the 1960s, it was the institutionalization of the media that became the vehicle for Moffo's rise to fame. Moffo also made a number of pop recordings for the U.S. market, which included extraordinarily beautiful performances of operettas by Victor Herbert, Rudolf Frimmel, and the like. I'm going to play you a couple examples. First, under the baton of Lehman Engel, and joined by the baritone Richard Fredericks, here is the Indian love call, also known as When I'm Calling You. In 1965, Moffo recorded another exceptional record of excerpts from musicals and operettas. This was called One Night of Love, which, of course, was the title song to a movie starring Grace Moore. From that record, we hear Kiss Me Again from Victor Herbert's Mademoiselle Modiste. Skitch Henderson is leading the RCA Victor Orchestra. The final operetta example for the American market is a performance of Oskar Strauss's My Hero from The Chocolate Soldier. Here, Moffo is joined by that Italian matinee idol, the tenor Sergio Franchi, who also starred in Richard Rodgers and Stephen Sondheim's Do I Hear a Waltz, and who was a popular nightclub and Las Vegas entertainer as well. I believe this was his U.S. recording debut, it's from 1963. The orchestra is arranged and conducted by Henri René, famous for, among many other things, his early collaboration with the great Urtha Kit. 1960s, Anna Moffo set out to conquer a third media market, that of Germany. She made a number of very, very good operetta recordings and also appeared in a number of TV films, including Die Schöne Galatea and Die Schöne Helena. Of course, around Moffo, Schönheit, and Glamour were never in short supply. From her first foray into the German market, we hear a recording of Franz Lehars' Meine Lippen Sie küssen so heiß from one of his greatest operettas. The bittersweet, Juditha.
1: Ich weiß es selber nicht, warum man gleich von ihm spricht, wenn man in meinen Bäl ist, meine Augen schaut und meine Hände gibt. Ich weiß es selber nicht, warum man von dem Zauber spricht, wenn, meine stirbt, wenn er wieder steht, wenn nicht mich sieht von hell Zu dem an
0: Moffo's conquering of the German market included collaborations with the very popular German tenor Rudolf Schock. Even to this day, there are undying fans out there who celebrate and revere Rudy. I've never been a big Schock fan, but he has a very serviceable and recognizable voice, and to his fans, he appeared, evidently, a very handsome man, so there you have it. He was never my type, that's okay. Moffo and Schock recorded two albums together, one of German and Viennese operetta and the other of American musicals and operetta. I'm going to play you one example from the operetta record. That is from Emmerich Kallmann's *Gräfin Maritza. This is the absolutely exquisite duet Sakya, ja, mein Lieb, Sakya, ja, followed by the more uptempo, Einmal möchte ich wieder tanzen. This recording was made in
1: 1971. In deinem Arm ein kleines bisschen Glück, aus deinem Arm ein seedig heißer Glück.
0: haven't really discussed Mofo as a recitalist, although she took this aspect of her singing very seriously as well, as evidenced by that recording we heard with Gerald Moore from 1972, another important piece in her conquering of the German market. She had already proven her mass appeal in the operetta performances, and that Lieder recital was an attempt to prove her credentials in a more upscale market, shall we say. But she gave a lot of performances throughout her career of song and recital. And from a 1971 recital in Vienna, in which she is accompanied by the redoubtable Italian pianist Bruno Cannino, whom you may remember from the Kathy Barbarian episodes that I've posted, we hear a surprisingly good performance, albeit somewhat distantly recorded from the audience, of Marietta's lied Glück, das mir verblieb from die tote Stadt of Erich Korngold. Offo did not perform that much contemporary music, but she did sing in Ildebrando Pizzetti's opera, *Iphigenia*, and she also made a recording in 1959, now very rare and hard to find, of music by Gianfrancesco Malipiero, This is an excerpt from a short song cycle by Malipiero that he wrote in the late 1950s called Dialoghi con Jacopone da Todi, who was an Italian friar and poet. This is O ubilo del core che fai cantar d'amore, and it's beautifully performed by Moffo, accompanied by the duo piano team of Gino Gorini and Sergio Lorenzi. Moffo didn't perform a lot of contemporary music, but she did include the music of American composers in her recitals. This is a live recital from the year 1967, which took place in Philadelphia, which she considered her hometown. This is a setting by the great American song composer Richard Hundley of a song called Wild Plum to a text by John Oric. They are unholy who are born to love wild plum at night, who once have passed it on a road glimmering and white. It is as if through the darkness had speech of silver words, or as though a cloud of stars perched like ghostly birds. They are unpitied from their birth and homeless in men's sight, who love better than the earth wild plum at night. The pianist is unidentified in this recording but he or she is darn good. (laughs) ¶¶ Once again, from that Lieder recital, I'm going to offer a further example. This is Richard Strauss's Cecilie, given an absolutely ecstatic and vocally quite unmannered and refulgent performance by Anna and Gerald Moore. feature a series of recordings by Mofo that have provided me with the greatest joy and have caused me to really seriously reappraise her importance and her contribution as vocal artist and exceptional musician. I mentioned at the very beginning that Madame Butterfly telecast from 1956. I'm going to play you a short excerpt from the third act, as Butterfly slowly begins to realize the truth that Pinkerton has married another woman and that they have come to take her child away from her. As Suzuki, we hear Miti Truccato Pace and as Sharpless Afropoli. The orchestra is led by Oliviero de Fabritis.
1: E and I'll
0: has stated that following these early performances of Butterfly, that she did not sing the role again for, I believe it was like 15 years. And when she resumed performances of it, she still was capable of giving an enormously beautiful and moving performance. There's a recording of the duet that she made with James King as her Pinkerton. This is from approximately the year 1973, as far as I can tell. And Kurt Eichhorn, who participated in a good number of her recordings from this period, leads the Rundfunk Orchestra München. With her butterfly. Lucia was a role that Moffo sang over the course of her not very long career. Her Lucia is represented at its absolute peak in the 1965 recording that she made for RCA, with Carlo Bergonzi as her Edgardo, and Georges Pretreux leading the so-called RCA Italiana Opera Orchestra, the pickup group that played for so many of these RCA recordings in the 1960s. This is an excerpt from the Veran Noite. Franchi Moffo made a second Lucia di Lamamore movie. This featured the conductor Carlo Felice Cillario and the singers Laios Cosma and Giulio Fioravanti. Here's a very brief excerpt of the duet between Lucia and her brother Enrico, played here by Fioravanti. Butterfly, we haven't yet discussed Moffo's performances of Puccini. Her Mimi was one of her calling cards. It was the role of her debut, for example, with Lyric Opera of Chicago, in which she sang opposite the Rodolfo of none other than Jussi Bierling. Another great success for her was the role of Liu, which she performed under the baton of Leopold Stokowski, in a production that also featured first appearances together in those roles of Birgit Nielsen and Franco Corelli. I don't like at all Moffo's performance of Signore Ascolta, but when we get to the second act, she gives an extraordinarily beautiful performance of Tanto Amore Segreto, which is my favorite of Liu's quote-unquote arias. One of Moffo's most perfect recordings, I think, is of Giacomo Puccini's La Rondine, which he envisioned as a kind of Italian operetta. It certainly is infused with a lot of waltz rhythms and exquisite melodies. Of course, everybody knows the canzone di Doretta. Again, it's not my favorite part of Moffo's recording of this role. Instead, I'm going to play you an excerpt from the other aria from Act 1, Ore Dolce Divine. We once again hear the RCA Italiana Opera Orchestra, conducted in this case by Francesco Molinari Pradelli. Another aspect of Mofo's repertoire that we've barely examined is her performance of French opera. We've certainly discussed the disastrous record of French opera heroines, which I think had she recorded it 10 years earlier, would have been one of the greatest examples of her vocal art. We've also discussed the hideous Thais, which again is a part that she probably would have sung very well, even as late as, say, 1968. She sang a lot of French opera at the Met, including the four heroines from Tales of Hoffmann, Mélisande in a short run of very beautiful performances conducted by Ernest Ansermet, Marguerite in Faust, Juliette, and the Manon of Jules Massenet. Before, she even sang the role on stage at the Met or anywhere else she recorded a two-record set of excerpts from Manon, one of Puccini's Manon Lescaut, with the Italian tenor Flaviano Labo and excerpts from Massenet's Manon with Giuseppe Di Stefano. This recording's from 1964, so one might expect to hear Di Stefano sounding really leathery and horrible, but he's remarkably good here. And once again, we hear the RCA Italiana Opera Orchestra led here, by the French conductor Rene Leibovitz. The recording's from 1964. And this is the climax of the Saint Sulpice scene. N'est-ce plus maman?" most celebrated and most frequently performed role was Violetta in La Traviata. This was a role which Moffo sang more than a thousand times and her final appearances at the Met were in this part in 1976 and of course it was in this part that she made her Met debut in 1959 and which she recorded for RCA in 1961. I revisited that recording in preparing for this episode, and it's really exceptional. Certainly, you hear the work that she had done with Luigi Ricci here. It's absolutely stylistically flawless, as are the performances by her two co-stars, Richard Tucker and Robert Merrill, both of which had extraordinary voices, but neither of which was necessarily a paragon of Italian Bel Canto style. I was struck by Moffo's incredibly intense performance of the letter scene, and I found an example of that that I'd like to share with you. This is a live recording from the Wiener Staatsoper under the baton of Berislav Klobuchar in October 1964. I'm going to give you the complete scene because it's so worth your time and attention to hear Moffo's unique approach to this role.
1: And this is the e gli a voi tornerà per il suo perdono, Dio pur
2: furberò. Curati, un avvenire migliore.
1: Giorgio Germò. Vittorio!
0: This is a part which Moffo sang through all of her vocal ups and downs. But even in 1972, I think that's approximately the year in which this recording was made, she could still throw off Sempre Libera like nobody's business. I'm going to offer you an excerpt from that recording. It comes from an album of arias that was released on Eurodisc called La Moffo. That's how she was known in Germany. In Italy, she was known as La Bellissima. So here is La Mofo, La Bellissima, in a late recording of Sempre Libera. it's clear to you all by now that I have become, much to my surprise, a huge fan of Anna Moffo. I will never be blind to her flaws, but there's so much more to this artist than either her exceeding beauty, her media profile, her sometimes scandalous movies, or her vocal mannerisms and flaws. My favorite Moffo recording And the one which really began to change my mind about Moffo as a vocal artist is called A Verdi Collaboration. This is a recording that was made in Italy in September 1962 under the baton of the under-recorded maestro Franco Ferrara, with whom I believe Moffo studied many of her roles. She sings arias from operas in which she never appeared and, frankly, in which she had no business appearing, including Ernani, Aida, Trovatore, and Ballo in Maschera. And yet, the vocal mannerisms are kept to a minimum, and her voice is in absolutely pristine condition. I'm going to play, for my closer today, an excerpt from Verdi's early opera Giovanna d'Arco. This is Sempre all'alba ed alla sera. And with this performance, I extend to you my heartfelt greetings and my gratitude that you have once again joined me on what was for me a very, very interesting journey. I hope it was for you as well. Dear friends, keep the song in your hearts. I'm Daniel Gundlach.